What up, y'all? Welcome to Queer Walk, the podcast, the insurgent bi-weekly audio syllabus for and by queer women of color, queer folks of color. Y'all know we family. Um, I am Money, and thank y'all for joining me in this new chapter of Queer Walk. Um, if this is your first time listening to Queer Walk, thank you for tuning in. Uh, and I, yeah, I hope you stay tuned. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and drop the intro so we can get into the episode. Love your chocolate demeanor and your cocoa kisses. I see your flow from a distance. Your vibe inside my submission. I give you all of me. Wanna make you proud of me. We see the God in all you do. Your light is harmony. Every time darkest night, brightest light, I'm loving your soul They hate you, replace you, taint you, but know that you go Worldwide from every continent, I just want you to jig a little bit Move them hips, feel that bliss, hug your sister, make a fist Don't resist your temptation, you amazing, no limitation My favorite in this matrix, we move by your vibration And that's love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby, you love, you love, hey. All right, so where can you find Queer Walk? How can you keep up with the podcast? Well, you can find us on all the social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, at Queer Walk Pod, that's P-O-D, on all the things. Uh, message me on there. I'm getting through the messages. I'll reply. <laughs> Hit me up on social media. Uh, if you want to follow the Tumblr page, uh, we're actually at queerwalk.com on Tumblr. Um, and you can listen to us on any of the places that you get your favorite podcast. So Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, CastBox, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, all the places um, you can listen to us on all the things. If you appreciate this podcast and would like to have it continue, you can contribute to Queer Walk in one of two ways. The first way is monetarily by uh, donating some of your money to make sure that uh, we can keep the mic on over here. You can do that in one of two ways. The first is by hitting us up one time or as many times as you want over on the Cash App. That is dollar sign Queer Walk Pod, P-O-D, over on the Cash App. Or you can become a sustainer of the program by giving a monthly donation. And you can do that through becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com slash queerwalkpod, P-O-D, to uh, see the suggested donations um, I have over there monthly. Or you can give as much or as little as you uh, would like on a monthly basis. It's just like a consistent way to give us uh, money (laughs) to make sure that Queer Walk continues. If you don't have the money... It's holiday season. It's the end of the year. There are so many other ways that you can support. You can rate the podcast on whatever your platform is that you listen on. You can request topics because I hardly ever had topics. (laughs) So um, I'll only have a topic segment if I have a topic that y'all want to hear me bump my gums about or I have something that I really want to talk about. You can... uh, retweet when I'm out on the Twitter streets and post the episode on Twitter. You can uh, share the episodes in your stories or put a friend on. 
Um, and reply. Use the hashtag QueerWOC to talk all things the podcast on all the platforms. Um, you can also send me your Curved Chronicles or um, Queer Walk or Queer Pock of the Week suggestions over at QueerWalkPod at gmail.com. All right. Well, I'm going to move it on along into the Queer Walk, Queer Walk, Queer Walk of the Week segment. Uh, and this is the segment here on Queer Walk where I will uplift, highlight, give roses to queer women and queer folks who are just out here doing amazing things and I think y'all should know about. Uh, If you have a suggestion for Queer Walk of the Week or Queer Pock of the Week, you can definitely shoot it over to me. So, this Queer Walk of the Week, (coughs) I was actually upset because uh, for folks who might be new here... um, Uh, Buckle in. I love uh, women's basketball for all the gay reasons. And um, I was really upset that this person was left off of the WNBA's. uh, They did like a W25, like the 25 most influential players in the 25 year history of the league. And Rebecca Brunson, a.k.a. BB, was left off the list. And so this queer walk of the week goes out to none other than the only five-time WNBA champion, Rebecca Brunson. So I'm going to tell y'all a little bit about um, BB and why uh, she's Queer Walk of the Week and also why the W had her popped up, leaving her off the W25 list. Um, So yeah, they said that they had these... Uh, criteria of judging people on like their on-court ability, their leadership um, on the teams that they've played on, the sportsmanship they show, and the community service. I'm going to read through just some of Rebecca's accolades, and y'all tell me if she she should have made the list a lot, because I, I think she should have. Okay, so um, like I said, Rebecca Brunson is the only WNBA player to have five rings. So, you know, when we we having conversations about GOAT things, <laughs> um, I think she should be in these conversations. And, you know, I really feel like there's like a, a Lynx bias. Like, I don't hear a lot of people mention Minnesota Lynx players at all when talking about gr- greatest players of all time in the WNBA. I think even in sports, there's like this coastal mentality where you hear people talk about folks who played on the coasts, like cities like LA and New York, but I don't know. Let me tell y'all, Minnesota, Minnesota has some hits, you know? (laughs) Uh, So Rebecca Brunson was the WNBA's all-time leading rebounder until her teammate, like I said, the Lynx, uh, Sylvia Fowles broke that record. I think it was like in 2019 uh, when Syl became the all-time leading rebounder. But um, BB held that record all that time before Sylvia broke it. Uh, She also still holds the all-time leading rebounder uh, record for Georgetown University, averaging 10 rebounds per game. She, she was averaging a double-double in college, okay? Um, she was drafted to the Sacramento Monarchs and won a championship with the Sacramento Monarchs in 05, starting her five-ring, you know, <laughs> a career. 
Um, but then when the monarchs disbanded, um, for those of you who are like, uh, the Sacramento monarchs, yeah, it was, they, unfortunately, uh, the monarchs are one of the teams that, uh, are not still with us in the W. So when they disbanded, uh, Rebecca went to the Lynx, Minnesota Lynx, where she spent the rest of her career and where she's now a, um, assistant coach. So she's still with the Lynx in Minnesota. And when she got to Minnesota, <laughs> Um, for those of y'all who don't know, if you haven't heard me talk about Simone the Augustus on this here microphone before, the Lynx just kind of dominated for a, a, a decade, really. They were in the finals like every year and won- winning championships every other year. So um, in 2011, in 2013, in 2015, and 2017, Rebecca Brunson won championships with the Minnesota Lynx, along with some of your other faves you might know, um, Lindsey Whalen, uh, Simone Augustus, like I said, hey boo. <laughs> and um, Maya Moore, who is also a fan fave and a, a well-known name inside and outside of basketball. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, she retired in 2020 and became an assistant coach. Uh, the Lynx retired her Jersey this season along with Simone Augustus. So 32 and 33 hanging right next to each other, um, retired in the same year. Okay. So that's just like the on court stuff, right? So that was one of the criteria for the W25. So leadership check on court ability check. Sportsmanship and community service. This is really where I wanted to uh, highlight Rebecca as Queer Walk of the Week and the W as a uh, as a whole, the players, not the league, um, because I don't think a lot of folks know this. So Rebecca, Lindsay Whalen, uh, Simone Augustus and Maya Moore were the four players who really kicked off um, this like visibility around um, support for movements, especially like racial injustice um, that we've seen in the last like few years. Uh, And I'm gonna tell y'all that story. Like, here's how I see it. Right. So um, in my opinion, uh, Rebecca Brunson led athletic solidarity uh, with the movement um, and kind of kicked that whole thing off like at least four months before Kaepernick ever started kneeling, um, way before uh, men's sports started gaining attention for um, doing things like wearing T-shirts at warm-ups and stuff. WNBA players started that. So in June of 2016, uh, before a finals game, it was right after the murder of Alton Sterling um, in Baton Rouge, uh, Simone is from Baton Rouge, and so she was emboldened and had already she's I had already been doing off the court stuff. Rebecca Brunson has a long history of doing things to support house houseless folks in their encounters with the police. Um, Maya Moore, I mean, I think everybody at this point uh, knows about, especially with her s uh, her SB win for um for her activism around um getting a guy who was wrongly convicted uh, out of prison and is now married to him. You know, so they had all been doing stuff kind of off court and this was kind of their moment to bring it onto the court. So the, the four of them held a press conference before the game and they came through dressed in all black like the omen <laughs> and their shirts said, um, change starts with us, justice and accountability. And they just talked about, you know, how they were fed up with the police killings of black folks in America. At that time, the police officers, four of the police officers who were supposed to be uh, working as security for the game, walked out 
in like protest of their shirts or whatever. Um, and that really sparked an uptick of movement happening in the W. So um, after the four of them wore their shirts in the press conference and during warmups before the game. Oh, and this is a finals game. If if that wasn't clear, if I didn't make that clear, like this is a championship team, right? Like they, they already done won um, three championships together and they're um, trying to win the 2016 one. Unfortunately, they didn't. But shout out to Candace Parker and the Los Angeles Sparks because that was a time. What a time to be watching basketball when the Lynx and the um, Sparks used to go at it. But yeah, so this is a championship team doing this. This is uh, four out of the starting five, right, <laughs> doing this. So um, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. So it made headlines and other players on other teams in the W kind of felt emboldened by their by their activism. The next month after that, the New York Liberty, the Indiana Fever and the Phoenix Mercury players wore um, black shirts. Um, Some of them had Black Lives Matter on it in solidarity with what uh, Rebecca Brunson and the Lynx had done. And they were all fined. um, The players were fined $5,000 for wearing these shirts. Uh, And the W later uh, rescinded their their fines, you know, because they got hella backlash from fans because the W's fan base is a whole bunch of queer women of color. Um, so they got a lot of backlash for finding these players for their um, their activism and using their their uh, teams as a platform for justice. Um, and so they they ended up taking the fines back. But the fact that they gave them in the first place, yeah, side eye in the W. But I really like credit this moment of the links starting off with the T-shirts and then, um, you know, the Liberty, Indiana Fever, Phoenix Mercury kind of following suit as like the start of the W realizing that they have power as a collective group of, um, you know, mostly women. Because now I feel like social action and speaking out is like synonymous. It's the, it's the norm for the W now. And this didn't just happen, you know, because the WNBA, whatever, decide, the powers that be decided that this is what the league was going to stand for. It's because women continue to fight the same way we always do for what is right. Um, and when you have a league that is uh, primarily women of color, that is primarily queer folks, we're going to speak about shit. <laughs> and so as the as the players uh, did it collectively, they realized, oh, wow, they can't the the attitude was kind of they can't find all of us. Right. And so um, Rebecca Brunson had talked about in an interview that that even players who weren't necessarily like understanding what the movement was about, they would still wear the shirt in support of their uh, teammates or just be like, well, I ain't going to be the only one out here without a <laughs> without the T-shirt on. Right. So it just became this. Um, this group and collective mentality, and they got a lot done. And now we see like the the WNBA um, Player Association really uh, doing big things for players and um, women and women's rights, women's uh, reproductive justice, queer folks, queer rights, um, trans uh, justice, all that. Like the, that the WNBA Players Association now is kind of the norm for them to say something. So outside of sparking the movement that we now see, WNBA, uh, the WNBA like um, 
in the 2020 season, yeah, it was like the 2020 season, uh, all the players had Breonna Taylor's name on the back of their jerseys, you know. This didn't happen overnight. It started with the movement work that the Minnesota Lynx um, spearheaded by Rebecca Bronson, Maya Moore, Simone Augustus, and Lindsey Whalen were doing out in Minnesota. So on top of all of that, um, her and her wife, Bobby Joe, <laughs> own a gay waffle spot. That's what I'm calling it. That's not how they uh, that's not how they advertise it, but that's how I advertise it. Together in the Twin Cities area, it's called Sweet Truvy. And their slogan is Eat Deliciously, Love Freely. Ain't that so cute? And this year, in June of 2021, Rebecca Brunson won the Lavender Magazine Community Pride Award for her um for her community service in the Twin Cities. So I mean, I think she deserved to be in the W25. All of her all of her teammates were in the W25. I don't know. There was some oversight there. But regardless, Rebecca Brunson, you are the Queer Walk of the Week. And I celebrate you and I see you as, you know, the only W player that can say you have five rings. So when uh, <laughs> we talking goat things, <laughs> I uh, remember you. Yes. Um, and she's a baddie, so check her out on Instagram, <laughs> Rebecca Brunson. It's time for that black feminist healing. This, that real shit that make believe. Come on, money, please help me get my shit together. I listen to the moment when times get rough. Put all my headphones, turn it all the way up. Who's gonna give you grounding tips? There's nobody better. Oh, money, help me get my shit together. <laughs> I really hope y'all like the jingle. It's one of my favorite jingles that Nikita did for the Mental Moment segment. And I think I'm going to keep it. I think I'm going to keep it for the Mental Moment with Money segment. Uh, So what is the Mental Moment with Money? So the Mental Moment with Money is the segment where I try to break down some um, mental health thing and give us some like really uh, tangible tools or tidbits um, alliterative uh, thing to help us <laughs> be more well and try to woo, survive, which is a task. And if this is your first episode, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. <laughs> I survived my PhD at Syracuse. And um, yeah, so I does this mental health stuff. This is my thing, right? So um. It's, it's money, Dr. Money, if you're nasty, right? <laughs> okay, y'all. So this episode, I mean, obviously, I feel like if you didn't see this coming, um, this is probably your first episode. I wanted to do a mental moment on grief. And after coming back off a of grief break, I felt like what else could I do a mental moment on than grief? So... I'm just going to be sharing a little bit about the five stages of grief model and how uh, it's a lie. Well, it's not a lie. It's complicated. I'll, I'll break it down a little bit and just share some stuff that I learned in grief therapy in the past seven months 
uh, since Nikita's passing and hopes that it really helps some of y'all who have also lost loved ones. I'm going to return to this mental moment as I make it through uh, important dates and anniversaries that are coming up um, in my friendship with Nikita and with other folks that I've lost this year. Folks, that, whew, um, just in general, sometimes I think November is just like a heavy month. Uh, I don't know why, but it just feels like so many uh, loss and grief related stuff in November. So I hope this uh, mental moment helps with some of that. So, okay. First, I want to start off by saying stage models. <laughs> Stay, I'm, try, I'm trying to be nice about stage models, but usually when you hear stages, when it comes to something mental health related, it if you do like a quick, even like a Google Scholar search, you'll see that it's probably, it probably doesn't have a lot of support or typology models, they don't really have a lot of support. And so here's here's what I want to say about that. Stage theories in general, just they don't do well when you hold them up to the light of research. <laughs> Everything from like identity development models to the five stages of grief model, um, they don't really hold up because um, what developmental psychologists uh, say is that uh, there's, there's pretty much been so much uh, social and economic change that this idea of predictability and consistency in a human lifespan is just shot to shit at this point. So, <laughs> so um, the idea that somebody would progress in a typical or normal way uh, when controlling for, you know, variables and stuff, it just doesn't really work out. So stage model, people don't go through the stages in the same sequence. Some people don't experience some stages at all. When you see a stage or a typology, just like kind of side eye it just a little, right? The other thing I think that happens with stage models is that it becomes prescriptive and not descriptive, right? So what I mean by that is prescriptive as in it's supposed to be telling you what you're supposed to be experiencing. And if you don't, you're somehow not normal or not function functioning healthily. That's not what <laughs> that's not what they were designed for. Most stage models were designed to kind of as grounded theories, like to describe an experience, like what happens, what how can we understand what's going on here? So they were supposed to be descriptive and they end up being prescriptive. Um, so that's the issue with stage models. All right. So Specifically, the five stages of grief model and why it's shit, right? It's not, I should stop saying that. <laughs> I'm just, it doesn't resonate with me. That's how I'll say it, you know? <laughs> so five stages of grief, also known as the Kubler-Ross theory of grief, um, was developed by the psychiatrist uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. That's why it's called the Kubler-Ross model. And she uh, first published this in her 1969 book. It's called On Death and Dying, which the I, I know I didn't go to medical school. Right. I got a Ph.D. So somebody who got who went to medical school will correct me. But this book was essentially her dissertation. So <laughs> whatever the equivalent is to that in medical school, that's what it feels like this was. She noticed while she was in residency working on, you know, becoming a psychiatrist that there was very little attention paid to terminal patients. So doctors and nurses weren't really spending time with them. Um, and so she really wanted to create a model that would allow 
medical people to um, have a way to engage with terminal patients. Um, so she wanted to explore the experiences of terminal patients and came and and noticed she observed these five emotional states of terminal terminally ill patients. So patients who were kind of grappling with the idea of their own death, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And some of y'all probably knew those stages of grief before I even named them because they are so much a fixture in like pop psychology and pop culture. It's like the five stages of grief. Everybody talks about denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Um, But what Kubler-Ross was observing was the emotional state of people diagnosed with a terminal illness. Um, she She was observing what they experienced and what they felt about their own deaths. Uh, after her like observation, she decided to go on and like do you know interviews, and she did about two hundred interviews for the book of dying patients. And I won't talk methods here. A lot of people critique this model because of methodology and talking about how this is not research. I won't. I'm not gonna go into methods here. But what I will say is that I believe that this is research, right? <laughs> I'm a, a queer ass black feminist who recognizes how harmful extractive research has been to my communities in the past. And so I think sitting down and talking to some some people about their experience is research. It's and I, and I'm not the only one who thinks that, but again I said I won't t- I won't talk methodology here, but a lot of people critique this model just because of her method and I think that that's some flimsy ass patriarchal ass shit, right? If I'm sitting down with 200 people and asking them their experience of something, you cannot tell me that that's not research. So, um, take it up with my dissertation committee if you have an issue with that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but what I'm getting at here and what you are probably hearing as I describe Kubler-Ross's work is that all she wanted her model to do was describe the emotional stages a person progresses through as they process their own death. Their own dying. She did this research with terminally ill patients. She never studied the the experiences of their loved ones. She never um, interviewed or asked the impact of the loss on other people. That's not what she was there to do. (laughs) She wanted to know how those who were dying were processing their own loss of life, not what the living people who have lost them um, would have to deal with after they succumb to their illness, right? For But for some reason, and I, oh, what is that called? Oh, it's called like concept drift or something. It's like this thing and it's actually from like mechanics where, uh, and like machining, where it's like the information you're putting in is not the, 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 the information that you get out is like it starts to change as as people intake more and more information. That happens so much with um, mental health stuff. It's like the concept concept drift. That's what it's called. It's like the concept gets so distorted from what it was originally meant to describe when it goes like mainstream and pop culture and like when you know, the, the masses have access to it, that it doesn't even, it doesn't even describe what it, 
originally intended to describe anymore. I see that happening so much with mental health stuff. And so part of what I want to do with the mental moment is to like actually um, go back to what these things are describing. Because I think when we get really specific about what it is we're talking about, that's when we actually can experience some healing. <laughs> like what? So if the stages of grief feel like they don't fit, it's because they were never designed to describe our experiences of processing the loss of someone we love. They were designed to describe how to process your own mortality, right? But as it got popular, especially like through the 80s, um, what... Uh, therapists, psychiatrists, researchers saw is that people were using this model for live folks, for folks who had lost people. And so in 1981, there was a study done by Barrett and some of her like research help um, that tested the model with widows, about 193 participants in this study. And I'll put all my citations in the description because, yeah, something I've noticed is like, even though y'all know, that I am a a book hoarder, a nerd, <laughs> that I have all the letters and credentials to do this stuff. Y'all still be asking me um, where I got my information from. And so I'm just going to start putting my citations, okay? So <laughs> it's like I, w- I will give y'all the bibliography. This is the audio syllabus. So all my... um. All my sources for this mental moment will be in the description of this episode. But um, Barrett et al., uh, parentheses, 1981, <laughs> test, tested the Kubler-Ross model with widows. And they re- none of them reported experiencing all of the stages of grief that Kubler-Ross had laid out. So out of 200 people, none of them said, yeah, I experienced all five of those things. And all of them reported having a hard time differentiating between the stages. So what that means is they would say things like, I don't just feel one of these at a time. So I don't just feel, so I don't just feel anger. I feel like anger and bargaining at the same time, essentially, is what people were reporting in this um, study. And they often reported also that they felt grief after the acceptance stage or phase two, which according to the Kubler-Ross model, once you get to acceptance, you kind of like free, <laughs> like there is no more grief um, experienced. And of course, of course, in her research, it was probably, that was the outcome that probably happened because she was studying terminally ill patients and they probably passed away quickly after reaching that. So um, what live folks who were grieving experienced is like, mm, there's not actually a decrease in the, the grief once I accept it. Um, and then a more recent study, a 2002 study, um, again, citations in the description, uh, found that about 200 people um, surveyed for this who had lost a partner. So they they surveyed these folks before and after losing a partner. Um, So kind of doing the follow-up work of Kubler-Ross's model, right? So the partners of folks who were terminally ill. Only 11% of the participants in that study followed the Kubler-Ross grief trajectory. And those that did, it took them an average of 18 months to move through all of those quote-unquote stages of grief. So... 
I hope all that background, (laughs) I hope that wasn't too much background, but essentially all of that background is to say that we are presented these five stages of grief as if they are the default and the norm. Um, Again, prescriptive ways to grieve and actually they are just descriptors. Like this is a way, this is a way that some people grieve. Um, if you go by this 2002 study, 11, about 11% of people will experience what Kubler-Ross described. The rest of us um, will have some other trajectory of grief. I also wanted to read this quote verbatim from um, this book published by the American Psychological Association about grief. <clears throat> the quote is, <laughs> at the most obvious level, scientific studies have failed to support any discernible sequence of emotional phases of adaptation to loss or to identify any clear endpoint to grieving that would designate a state of quote unquote recovery. Y'all hear that? <laughs> Essentially that quote says, um, as the American Psychological Association, we have yet to find any proof that grief stops <laughs> or that it progresses in stages. And that was published in 2001. And somehow we still are doing this like idea that there's the five stages of grief and you just got to get to acceptance and grief will be all right from there. I, I started to think like, why do we hang on to it then if it's been disproven since like the 80s? Um, and I think that, you know, this has been said before. <laughs> um, there's a whole bunch of articles that kind of use this phrasing, but We are pattern seeking as humans. It's the way our brain works. It's how we incorporate new information, schemas, all that stuff. And I think at some basic level, everything from religion to the way we we understand stage models of psychology, we are just trying to make sense of a life that often doesn't feel like it follows any rules, right? (laughs) Like... That's what I've been thinking the most about with grief this year is like this. It broke all the rules, but it also fit all the rules. It just don't it just don't make sense. Right. So um, that's why I think we do this. That's why I think we hold on to these things that feel ordered in a way is because we're just trying to make sense out of chaos. So in doing this mental moment, I didn't just want to shoot to shit the, (laughs) the stage model of grief. You know, it's okay to use it if um, the stages feel like they resonate for you. It's okay to use, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance as like descriptors of what you're feeling. But don't feel like it is a um, prescription and you have to move through those stages in that way in order to heal from grief. Because research does not support that. And my experience this year, if it counts as a case study of grief, does not support that. There is no normal or right way to grieve. So with that, I wanted to offer three other thoughts or models on grief that might resonate more with folks than the five-stage Kubler-Ross model. So the first one, I learned in grief therapy. Shout out to my grief group (laughs) and my grief therapist um, who... Uh, Oh my gosh, like, what was it? Two months of doing intense grief work. uh, I truly feel like got me to the stage where I could turn this mic on again and start podcasting again. Um, 
in return to this. So shout out to my grief group. I love y'all. And shout out to my grief therapist. (laughs) But this concept, uh, another way to think about grief is called grief brain. And I'll also put a citation for this. There's a book attached. Uh, Grief brain essentially thinks about grief as a neurological process, like a traumatic brain injury or something, or a trauma. So the book that I'm recommending for this model of grief is, it's called Before and After Loss, A Neurologist's Perspective on Loss, Grief, and Our Brain. And it's by um, this doctor named Lisa Shulman. So grief brain essentially is this model that outlines the the process of grief and what grief does to our brain. So experiencing things like numbness, emotional numbness, where you just don't feel nothing, Uh, bodily numbness, where it's like maybe you can't feel your fingertips or your toes, Uh, depression, forgetfulness, Um, not remembering things. Oh, that, that happened to me. I feel like... Ooh, I feel like I was I had to be on like autopilot for the whole month of May. I don't really remember uh details or anything. I it's just I don't know how I got through it, but I did. <laughs> so that forgetfulness is real and brain fog and also fearfulness as a process of grief because grief kicks into gear our like bottom brain. I don't know how to describe this. I'm just remembering this from like my neuroscience class. So I I don't, you know, I'm not a neuropsychologist. I don't, I don't remember the details of it. But what I remember about brain structure and processing trauma and stuff is that when we're in our bottom brain, we are like responsive, right? It's the parts of our brain that are kind of like hardwired, like our reflexes, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn responses. It's the it's the trauma brain. It's not the thinking, reasoning, rational, memory, storage parts of our brains, right? It's the what's going to help me get through this day. And so when when that part of our brain is really active, um, we're kind of like hypervigilant. Um, so fear comes along with that. And so it totally makes sense in this model of grief for fearfulness, for um, like forgetfulness, because you're not remembering, you're just reacting having breathing stuff happen, uh, all of that is a process of trauma in the grief brain um, model. So like I said earlier, in this way, grief is like a traumatic brain injury and no two people um, recover from it or experience it the same. You know, it's like some somebody will have this happen and kind of like have a lot of neuroplasticity and bounce back. And then other people, it takes them a long time and they have to relearn things. Uh, that's what uh, this book by Shulman is kind of asserting, right? That grief functions in our brains similar to trauma. And therefore, everybody has their own road to recovery with it. Um, and so this uh, this reading about grief brain and learning about it in grief therapy, so it made me think, of grief like a syndrome because it's like here are some typical symptoms that occur together a lot. You might have some of them, you might have all of them, you might have none of them, but this is just like what we see tend to happen. Um, And I think thinking of grief in the syndrome type format feels just like a lot more helpful and relatable to me and my grief process than the stage model of first I feel this and then I feel this and next I'll feel this. That just didn't work for me. Another approach 
to thinking about grief. The Okay, the next two are actually, um, I got these from Dr. Tracy Marks. Love her. She's a black psychologist who does YouTube videos. It's like, you know, her, her mental moments, basically. <laughs> this is the mental moment with money. There's also the mental moment with Dr. Marks. <laughs> but I love her. Y'all should check out her YouTube channel. I'll make sure to put a link to Dr. Tracy Marks in the description of this episode. So she has two different models of grief as well. The first one is the high-low model, and the second one is the shock trajectory model. So I'll talk about the high-low, and then I'll talk about shock trajectory. So the high-low model of grief um, holds that our negative emotions uh, and our experience of grief are highest at the moment of impact, um, when it first happens and over the first year. And then after the first year of anniversaries and important events, we experience lower, less intense levels of grief as time passes. The high-low model holds that like in the first year, we are in a longing mode. Like our memories and our thoughts about the person we lost are in this like, oh, I wish they were here. I wish they were here. Why aren't they here? But after that high, high spike of those longings in the first year, after the anniversary, um, we move into more of memories about the person and memories of joy and fond memories, which give us a little, we are allowed to have a little bit of joy in the grief too. And so essentially the high-low model says that our grief is heaviest um, in the first year and like those first round of anniversaries. And, and after that first year, our grief becomes more remembering and we can even move into joy and laughter around the person that we lost as opposed to it being as heavy as it was at the beginning. So I really like this high-low model. Um, I feel like it kind of describes what I'm already experiencing and it hasn't even been a year yet. Uh, It's just like at the beginning, it's just devastation. And then you're able to kind of like think about... um, the good times, going on and seeing moments of life that are worth it, you know, moving forward. So I like the high-low model. And I think it also uh, puts a timeline that doesn't feel unrealistic for me. You know, it's like, okay, if it's going to be heavy for a year and then maybe on the anniversary and the important dates of that loss, It feels heavy, but in the middle of those, I can experience some like levity in my grief. And I also love this model because it doesn't say that grief ever ends or goes away. It just gets less heavy. So, and the other, the other model that Dr. Marks talks about is the shock trajectory. I, I think as I heard her talk about this, I could see some of my friends' faces in my head of like, oh, yeah, they definitely are a shock trajectory griever. So let me tell you what the shock trajectory is. So ch- shock trajectory is basically the flip of the high-low model. It's delayed grief. It's where you seem okay to everybody. You're like hella functional. You're not really experiencing negative emotions. Some folks like may not even cry if if the shock trajectory is um, the model of grief that they're experiencing. Uh, And then as time passes 
and everything kind of slows down and maybe people stop checking in or trickle off, that's when you start to feel the weight of the loss and the negative emotions. I got to be up doing something in order to like process that this thing has happened. But when everything slows down is when I feel the weight of it. Um, that's the shock trajectory. And I can totally understand why some people have this experience of grief because at the initial impact of the loss of somebody, people are showing up, they're bringing food, they dropping, <laughs> dropping by your house to check on you. They doing your laundry. They clean, you know, like there's, there's like this community that shows up when the immediate loss happens. But as time passes, People don't check in anymore. You got to go back to work and do your own stuff, you know? And that's when you kind of realize like, holy shit, like I have experienced this deep loss and everybody else has kind of like, either they've already experienced those really heavy emotions and now they're kind of moving into like the, the levity of the grief and you're just feeling it. Or people have kind of been forced to move back into like business as usual because of capitalism. I think capitalism really fucks with our ability to grieve. And then you're just sitting there stuck with the heaviness of it, right? And so I I really um, see this shock trajectory a lot in understanding grief this last year. So yeah, so those are three other models of grief outside of the stages. So <laughs> the first being grief brain, the second being the high-low model, and the third being shock trajectory. So I hope that hearing those kind of normalized any of you all's grief processes that you've experienced this year. I know learning of other models definitely normalized it for me. Am I going to? Okay, I don't want this. Well, it's my first mental moment back. Hey, I was about to say, I don't want it to be too long, but I think I'm going to talk about these other two things related to grief that I learned in grief group too. So uh, (laughs) I never knew there was a word for this thing, but I wanted to talk about stolen grief. And I've been calling it, um, in my head, I've been calling it Sean King syndrome (laughs) because Because what stolen grief is, is when someone uses the uh, the loss of someone for either like political, monetary, material gain, right? So they are literally displacing the grief from the folks who were most impacted by the loss of someone to gain resources, clout, notoriety, sympathy, whatever for themselves, and when I tell y'all I have seen this happen, so and, and it is so painful because it redevastates the people who actually experienced the loss, the people who were close to that person. So learning about stolen grief in my grief therapy group, like really opened my eyes. Like, this is why this is so painful for me. It's like this person is getting all of these resources over the like death of a, a black queer woman that could be going to other black queer women who are still here, who still need support, you know? Yeah, so learning about stolen grief, aka Sean King syndrome, because I feel like he'd be posting people's um, loss just to to raise money. And (laughs) so that's what I've been calling it. But stolen grief um, is a thing. And so if you feel a way about seeing somebody post about somebody's loss, 
in a way that feels like it's centering that person and not the person that was lost, there is there is a reason. It's because they are engaging in stolen grief. And the other um, term that I learned about that I didn't know before my grief group was disenfranchised grief. So disenfranchised grief is different than stolen grief in the way of uh, disenfranchised grief is when you don't have a connection to the person who who was lost in a way that society can easily digest and therefore allow you to mourn and grieve for them. Um, so an example of disenfranchised grief that I experienced in this over this year, you know, dealing with the loss of my best friend and, you know, Nikita was the co-host of Queer Walk, is that a lot of y'all wrote wrote me and said that, like, I don't even know why I'm like grieving her because I didn't really know her. I just listened to the podcast. That is an example of disenfranchised grief. Your grief is real as hell. <laughs> Your grief is real, you know. But there's no like social process for um, how to like grieve as a fan of someone. There's no social process for how to grieve uh, a person that you perceive as community because y'all share identities, because you see yourself in them, because y'all share values and beliefs. You know, there's just there's just no neat social process that says your grief is valid even in this circumstance. So that's an example of disenfranchised grief. Another example that's kind of like um, structural, when I, so I was still teaching when Nikita passed and I obviously couldn't teach. <laughs> teach. I was, uh, to and, and my, from my perspective, the semester was over, right? <laughs> it was whenever I got that call, the semester was over. But in reality, I still had to teach and so folks had to cover my class. There was no... There was no bereavement days for best friends, right? The university's HR department had no structure for what to do if someone's best friend passed away. So they used the structure for if a sister died for me. I'm like, why? Why isn't there bereavement days for like other or miscellaneous? It actually made me think about the memes of people calling in black. It's like, yes, we need... Uh, other category for grief that isn't just these um, these uh, structural structurally defined family members because we make family in all kind of ways and we definitely know that as queer folks. Yeah. Okay. That's all I have to say about grief, which is a lot. <laughs> but I hope any of it was helpful or you was like, oh shit, yes, that's what I feel or that's what I experienced. Um, I'm putting all the links to everything in the description. Um, I encourage y'all to check it out. If y'all don't have access to grief groups around you, um, please check out the resources. If you do have access to grief groups, or if you don't have access to one, literally what we, what we did in my friend group is we all got together and got a therapist (laughs) and like paid, um, the therapists for group sessions to process our grief. It was just a designated time in a week where we knew that we could have this space to work through stuff together. I encourage y'all to do that with each other as well. Community, we all we got. Do I have a topic for this episode? Do I have a topic? Um, It's not really a topic, but I guess I did just want to update y'all because I guess I really didn't in this grief break. So I am no longer in Washington State. 
I'm back on the East Coast where my heart belongs. Um, and I'm in Philly now. So what's up, Pennsylvania? And actually, I'm not Pennsylvania. Philadelphia. What's up, Philadelphia? Because <laughs> I don't know what's happening between here and Pittsburgh, but I don't claim it. I rebuke it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm back in Eastern Standard Time Zone. And I moved here very recently and I'm still getting my footing. I don't know. Um, I need to leave my apartment more. That's definitely true uh, to actually find community and meet people here. But it's weird. It's weird outside. And it's still a pandemic and people are acting like it's not a pandemic. And that makes me anxious. And so I just end up staying in my house. Um, But... What I do love about living in Philadelphia is that Philly is a very POC city, a very black ass place to be. Um, (laughs) So I felt like, um, oh, what's that? What's that? Is it hairspray? Tracy Turnblad? Good morning, Baltimore. I felt like that, except Philadelphia. So like, good morning, Philly. I would just like open my door when I first moved here. And just be like, yes. Hello, black people. Negro day. <laughs> Negro day every day. And <laughs> um, it what it actually illuminated for me is that Living in places where I don't see black people just like going about their day to day life or like living life um, really did a number on me. Like being in a in a space like Tacoma where you're the only black person on the street, you know, and like you can go days and days without seeing another black person. It just really impacted me. And, you know, I didn't grow up in a space like that. I grew up in Queens. And so being in those spaces, upstate New York and Washington, that was just like wiggity white um being in philadelphia i know my neighbors thought i was weird when i first moved here because i would just be like hey black people and it just really made me excited to see so many folks and it was like this funny thing where i was like well i need to look for like black owned this and black owned that and it's like child your whole block is black owned like it's (laughs) everything is black owned it's a vegan um well, they have vegan options, uh, restaurant right across from me. And it's like black, <laughs> black owned, black operated. Um, and I love it. I love it. I love that. Uh, like I said, I'm still getting adjusted. I don't know where the cool kids hang out. Most of most of the only friends I have here are my coworkers. I, yeah, I just have not been out and about. So if y'all have suggestions about what life can be like, here in Philly for me. Hit me up and let me know. You can either use the hashtag QueerWOC or just respond to me. <laughs> let me know because I I do know that I need to leave my apartment more. Um, as cute as it is, I need to be outside of here more. There are whole days where I don't ever even see the stairs in my building because I just be in the house. I'm also not teaching anymore. I don't know if I said that I don't think I said it anywhere, actually. But yeah, I'm I'm no longer uh, in the academy. I needed to get away. <laughs> I feel like I have a lot of just like breathing to do after my experiences at SU and being a visiting assistant professor. And I just need to remember that I loved reading, writing, and learning stuff. Um, 
before the harm that I experienced in grad school. So I'm just taking a minute, you know, it's like, will I ever teach again? Maybe because, uh, you know, who knows who can ever predict what will actually happen in life. Um, so maybe I love teaching. I just wish I could do it in ways that weren't attached to like the university. Um, because it's just so like, like I was saying about living in places that aren't Philly. It's just like, it's just so hard to be the only one all the time. It, it feel like it really does a number on your psyche. Um, you know, we talk a lot about like the first black this and the first, but we don't really talk about the like impact that has on a person. You know, it's, ooh, it's a lot to just be sitting in all these rooms with these people that you have to explain like these like really minute things about what it means to exist as you. It's like, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of it. I need a break. So, um, yeah, full-time therapy right now. That's what I'm doing. Not in any kind of rush to go back to the academy. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. So I guess the topic for this episode was just like an update on my life. (laughs) All right. And last but not least, the final segment of this here program is Curved Chronicles. What is Curved Chronicles? Curved Chronicles is just a segment where I talk about my dating woes and wins and or your dating woes and wins. You can send your Curved Chronicles to QueerWalkPod at gmail.com if you have any dating stories or questions that you want to share with the family of QueerWalk. So, um, I don't know what has been happening, but I've been doing a lot of like dating by accident type stuff <laughs> lately. I don't know what the hell been going on, y'all. Um, but I did want to tell y'all this one story of one of the only times I've gone out since being in Philly. Uh, <laughs> uh, so one of my friends came to visit um, from DC and we went to like, I think it was like Outfest weekend or something. I guess that's like a thing that happens here in Philly in October. There's like a weekend called Outfest. If I'm wrong, somebody will correct me. But yeah, so it was just a lot of gay stuff happening that weekend. So I was like, okay, cool. So me and my friend went to this rave. It wasn't really a rave, y'all. I don't know why they called it that. Maybe because there were glow sticks. But um, it was a like socially distant rave, right? Like uh, checking vaccination cards, masks, all the things, right? So I was like, okay, I feel comfortable going to this. We went. It was cute. People's doing splits, you know, because... <laughs> When you really trying to fuck it up, you hit a split. People was doing all of that. It was great. Me and my friend had a good time. Um, I love being at a, a function that's not hot, you know. It wasn't a lot of people because they were, you know, adhering to COVID guidelines and all that stuff. It was cute. It was cute. And then I saw this person with these long locks. And y'all know how I feel about locks. I think it. I fully have like a fetish or something for locks. (laughs) And so I saw them from the back at first and I just saw the locks and I was like, oh, yes. But then when they turned around, they was very, very fine. And I was like, oh, yes, yes. And they were also tall because y'all know y'all know I'm tall. And I was just like, what, what, what in the uh, dreaded goddesses is happening here? So, (laughs) so I being me am uh not shy at all, went up to them and I was like, um, can I get your number? (laughs) And and they were like, yeah, sure. But I just got this phone. So I don't know my number. And I was like, 
okay, well, you want to take my number? And they were like, oh, no, I got a card right here with my number on it. Yes, for some of you who might be throwback Queer Walk listeners, y'all were probably laughing right now. I laughed when this happened because I thought to myself, um, if only I could tell Nikita that somebody handed me a business card (laughs) in the club. Um, when I asked them for their number. So, yeah, they handed me a business card with their number on it. They're like, yeah, I just got the phone. I just got the cards today. Uh, And I was like, okay. They didn't take my number. I just took the card. And I was like, okay, cute. I'm going to make sure I message you. And then what happened, y'all? What happened? I lost the freaking card. I lost the card. I don't know where I put it. I thought I put it in my um, bag that I had with me when me and my friend was leaving the, the party. I don't know what happened. I was talking to somebody as they was coming into the party. I was talking to my friend. I don't know if I dropped it before we got in the lift. Whatever happened, I no longer have the card. And so I could not follow up with the cutie with the locks who gave me their business card at the club. <sighs> And so I guess I have to follow the like <laughs> the agreement uh, we came to on Queer Walk like three years ago that, you know, business cards are not the way to flirt and, and they're just not the move. Uh, damn. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe that was like a, a soft curve of, you know, oh, I won't give me I don't need your number. Here's my business card. But I really played myself by losing the card. Because who wouldn't have reached out to somebody's office number? Who? (laughs) No, I'm not calling nobody's office. But um, they were really fine. They were very, very fine. I think maybe fine enough for me to at least talk to a receptionist. Just in case it was an office number on that card. Life happened and I lost the card. And so now this tall person with locks who was very, very fine... Um, and could dance and could dance. It's just like out there floating through life thinking I never called them or never messaged them when in actuality they gave me a freaking business card and I lost it. So that's the, that's the curve. I played myself for losing the card. (sighs) Oh, well, (laughs) uh, guess it's back to the apps. No, uh, nothing will ever take me back there. You know, I just. It it just apps are just not the place for me, okay? Yeah, maybe I just need to go to another rave and hope you know. It's like one of those misconnection things. I'll go back to the exact same spot. I'll wear the same thing so they can recognize me. (laughs) They'll be there waiting, Um, and it'll be like thirty years from now. We'll be old, and we'll be like, oh, that moment when we fell in love with each other. Watching each other twerk on the dance floor. I saw your locks. You saw my neon, my neon shoes. And <laughs> you gave me a business card and I freaking lost it. And so we never saw each other again. So maybe it'll be one of, one of those reunions like that. Um, but who knows? <laughs> I just lost the freaking business card, y'all. What a shame. And with that... <laughs> That concludes uh, this episode of Queer Walk, the podcast. Thank y'all so much for tuning in and listening again. Remember to uh, 
hit me up on all the things at QueerWapPod, P-O-D. Um, use the hashtag QueerWOC to talk all things the podcast. Let folks who you think would enjoy this podcast um, know about it. This episode of Queer Walk the Podcast was made possible thanks to the monetary contributions of Tiff V, Alyssa Gable, Lee Crow, and Joan B, who all became new patrons. This episode of Queer Walk the Podcast was also made possible by the listeners in St. George, Grenada, Walled Lake, Michigan, and Anchorage, Alaska, who were all in our uh, top stream cities. So shout out to the listeners in all those places for making this episode possible. And I will see y'all next time. Deuces. Bye, y'all.